0: Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. That's mercy. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. The psalmist said it like this. It said, uh, "If Lord, if you treated us as our sins deserve, who could stand? Like We, we, we couldn't do it. So mercy is, is not getting what we do deserve. But here's what grace is. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. This is super good news. God doesn't just forgive us but he saves us and then puts us into his family. It's not just that we're not going to hell. It's that we are now children of God and we receive everything that God has given us. If you think about the children of Israel when they were delivered from Egypt, maybe you've seen the Prince of Egypt or the old movie, Ten Commandments. Uh, when God took Israel out of Egypt, that was one part, that's salvation. God takes you out of darkness, out of darkness the enemy's world out of the kingdom of darkness. But then he takes you into the promised land. He takes you into the promises of God. And so God doesn't just save you or just forgive you, but he loves you, he adopts you, and he gives you what you do not deserve. He gives you life and he gives you strength and he gives you peace and he gives you joy. So mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. And now with that in mind, I wanna go to Romans 8. Last week, we looked at Ephesians 2, and I told you how important Ephesians 2 is to the life of every Christian. Well, Romans 8 is right up there with Ephesians 2, and here's what uh, Romans 8 says, verse 1, therefore, there is now. Everyone say now. Now. Okay, I want you to catch this, that this, this is right here, right now. This is, this is a present reality for the believer. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life who... Uh, set me free from the law of sin and death for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. He, he canceled it. He, he called it powerless. He, it's, it's, it's dead at the cross in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met, watch this, in us. So it was met in Christ, but now that we're in Christ, it's met in us. That, that means that it's as if you've never sinned, and it's as if you perfectly obeyed and followed the law of God without ever sinning. That was met in you because of what Christ did. And now here's how we ought to live. We shouldn't live according to the flesh. I'll explain that in a moment, but according to the Spirit. Lord, bless your word. Speak now. In Jesus' name, everybody with faith said, amen. "Amen." All right. Here's the first thing that I want to tell you, and here's point number one: I am not guilty. I am not guilty. Everybody say, "I am not guilty." I am not guilty. Look at your neighbor, whoever looks guilty. <laughs> tell them you are not guilty. You are not. You are not guilty. You look at, but. All right. Check this out. Romans eight one. In Jesus, there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation. Condemnation means the guilty sentence against you. When the gavel drops, the judge says not guilty. Now, you know you are guilty, and you know the mistakes you made, and you know the things you're dealing with and the issues that you're facing. And yet, in Christ, because of the cross, because of your faith in Jesus, God declares you not guilty. Boy, that's good news. And it's not not guilty in heaven if you make it. It's now there is no condemnation. So it's not that you're guilty until proven innocent on the other side. It's you're innocent right now because God declares no condemnation. Not because you're perfect, not because you don't make mistakes, but because God said so if you're in Jesus. So now let's, man, that's good news, by the way, because some of you are like, well, I think I'm a Christian right now, but I don't know if I'll, now there is no condemnation. Okay. So let's, let's remind ourselves of what happened with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sin against God. They turn against God. They rebel against God. They go their own way. And immediately three things happen. And these things always happen in, in sin. First, there was shame. Then there was blame. Then there was pain. And that will always happen. I'm not a just because I'm preaching on grace doesn't mean we're light on sin or pro-sin. Sin Sin will destroy your life, sin will destroy relationships, sin will harden your heart. Uh, Sin will separate you from God. It won't separate God from you, it'll separate you from God. Sin will hurt you and will hurt anyone around you. Okay, so we're not, we don't, we're not light on sin. God is not light. If you want to know what God's opinion of sin is, just look at the cross. Okay, so God is not light on sin. Um, sin always destroys, and we see it right with Adam and Eve. First of all, you see shame. The Bible said they were in the garden naked and unashamed, but the moment they sin, they are ashamed, they cover themselves, and they hide. It's the first thing that happens. And God says, why are you hiding? Why have you covered yourself? Who, who told you you were naked? What, how did this all happen? Second thing that happens is they blame. Adam blames two people. He says, the woman you gave me. So he blames Eve and he blames God. And Eve says, I'm blaming the serpent. She blames the devil. So number two, there's blame. And then thirdly, there's pain. What happens? Cain and Abel immediately. There is death. There is murder. There is lying. There is jealousy. There is all of this terrible stuff that is released with sin because sin will always cost you more than you want to pay. And sin will always keep you longer than you want to stay. We don't, we, you never want to play with sin. You, we're going to sin. You're going to make mistakes. But I wouldn't plan on it. Because <laughs> it's, it's never going to turn out how you think it's going to turn out. It's always going to lead to shame, to blame, and to pain. But in Christ, there is no condemnation. That means that even though we've done things and do things that make us guilty, God says not guilty, and that's good news. That's grace, that God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. Think about this, Romans 8, 31, 30 verses later, the Apostle Paul says this, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, that's a good old preaching scripture, and people preach it about victory and glory to God, and that's great, but I don't even want to do that. I want to look at four little words right there. If Check this out. God is for us. God is for us. God is for you. God is for me. God is for us. God is for us. God is for you. God is for you. I didn't believe that growing up. I believed God was against me. I believed that God was mad at me. I believed that God was frustrated with me. I believed that God was disappointed with me and that I had to read my Bible and I had to pray and I had to fast and I had to repent and I had to live holy and I had to tithe and I had to give and I had to go to church and I had to serve and I had to go on mission trips and I had to do all those things so that maybe God would turn towards me. That's what I believed. That's how I, that's just how I believe. That's the kind of church I grew up, I did not grow up in a church like this. I grew up in a church where the pastor was mad every week. (laughs) He pound the podium. It wasn't like it was a big wooden desk. (laughs) Come to find out, he was cheating on his wife with the secretary. Angry preachers are always mad at themselves first. You need to repent. You need to change. Yeah, they're preaching at themselves. So he blew that church up and ruined a lot of lives. But anyway, we won't talk about that. That's why I'm never impressed with anger. I'm never impressed with anger. Because if they're mad, they're mad at themselves first. So I just, that's just another, anyway. Um, so I was, I was taught, the, it was never said God is against you, but it was implied. Yeah. So I was, just, I was always in fear. I was always afraid. I always felt like I was disappointing God. I always felt like I wasn't measuring up. Um, I was always trying to turn God towards me. Maybe if I do enough, say enough, pray enough, God will turn towards me. But God says here, no, I'm for you. I'm for, I'm for you. The disposition of my heart, my, my posture towards you is yes. I'm, it's yes. Now, every half-decent human in here who has a child understands this. You saw that kid before you even saw him. When you, when you saw him on the, on the screen, you went, yes. Love him. Anything I can do for you, it's a yes. The moment you see your child, every parent thinks the same thing. I want to protect you. I want to provide for you. I want to love you. I, I will do whatever it takes to make your life better than my life. That's what every parent thinks. How much more your heavenly father Does he think that towards us? God is not against us. God is for us. And grace is God's yes towards humanity. 1 John chapter 3. What marvelous love the Father has extended to us. Just look at it. We're called children of God, and that's who we really are. That's who you are. When you put your faith in Christ, you become a child of God. So this love that God has for us, God is love, God does love. So how does grace and love work together? Grace is God's love in action. So God is love and God does love, but God expresses love through unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor, grace. When you feel God's love, it comes in the form of grace. He he expresses his love to us through grace. I want you to understand that. So he doesn't, he's not just bound to forgive us because he has to. He loves you and he extends mercy. He extends forgiveness. He extends grace. He extends love because he wants to. You know, God doesn't have to do anything he don't want to do. Does that make sense? Look at 1 John four eighteen. There is no fear in love. No fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, pushes out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. So let's talk about this really quick. This text right here that we're reading, 1 John 4, is about an unhealthy fear of God. And John is saying there is a perfect love that God has for you, and when you understand that, it will drive out an unhealthy fear that you have towards God. See, I was afraid of God. I didn't fear God. I was afraid of God. To fear the Lord is to be in awe of the Lord. That's different than being afraid of God. Like, I'm not afraid of my wife, Shannon, but I have a healthy awe and respect for her that says, I don't want to hurt her. I don't want to hurt my family. I don't want to bring pain to her. Some of you men are like, I'm afraid of my wife. No, I'm not, a, I'm, I'm not afraid of her, and she's definitely not afraid of me. But there is a awe, there is a healthy respect that we have That says, I don't want to do anything to harm you or harm our relationship. So the fear of the Lord is not to be afraid of God, but to say, I worship God and I love God and I have an awe of God. But I didn't have a fear of the Lord. I was afraid of God. Yeah, there's a big difference. Because fear has to do with punishment. Okay, let me explain this now. Punishment is not discipline. The punishment found in 1 John 4, 18 is talking about hell. It's talking about judgment. It's talking about being eternally separated from God. That's not discipline. Hebrews chapter 12 says that God disciplines those he loves. But discipline is not this kind of punishment. And by the way, here's how God disciplines. God does not discipline through calamity. God doesn't discipline through circumstance. God doesn't discipline through cancer or car accidents or sickness or disease. God doesn't doesn't use natural causes to discipline his children. If he did, we would all be holy because we've all gone through hell. We've all been through pain and we still jacked up because that's not how God disciplines. God doesn't change you through calamity. God never sends calamity on his kids. Imagine if you did that. To your child, you'd go to jail. Now my 11-year-old's been acting up. I'm gonna run him over. (laughs) Yeah, you're going to prison, bud. You're done, we're done. (laughs) Yeah, you know, God really got my attention. God didn't get your attention. Life got your attention, and maybe it made you think, man, I need to take my relationship with the Lord more seriously, but God didn't send that. Let me tell you how God disciplines, by the way, since I'm on it, John 15 and 16, Jesus said, you are purified, I purify, I cut you, I cut you, I prune you, you're like a branch, and I cut you by my word. So if, if you never read the Bible, you'll never be disciplined. This is how God spanks you. It's wow. yeah. how God grounds you. Yeah. This is how God sends you to your room. No Bible, no discipline, but no discipline, no maturity. So you'll you'll never, God will never discipline you outside of, out of his word. This is how he he prunes you, he cuts you, he sanctifies you, he makes you holy by the word of God. But only by the word. Not by circumstance. Isn't that good news? Because you hear the weird, you'll hear people say the weirdest things about They go through something weird and they blame it on God. Well, the Lord was working in mysterious ways. No, he wasn't. And by the way, for for everyone who learns from those, a thousand people will get offended and lose their faith. So that's obviously not how God does it. It is scripture that disciplines, prunes, cuts, heals, and changes me. And that is discipline, and that discipline leads to maturity, and that maturity leads to growth. So without, without the Bible, you'll never grow, you'll never mature, and you'll never live a disciplined life. You must have Scripture. That took way too long. Back to 1 first, first John 18. The one who fears, let's go back, 1 John 4, 18. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Okay, this word perfect is mature. So let's say it like this. The one who fears cannot mature. I cannot mature past my understanding of God's love. I cannot grow past my understanding, my revelation of how much God loves me. I'll never grow past that. The less convinced I am, the more distance I will create. Because you will always create distance between what you, between you and what you fear. Am I preaching all quiet today? I will, I will always create distance between myself and what I fear. If you're afraid of dogs and there's a dog walking on the street, you'll walk to the other side. If you're afraid of flying, you'll drive to Seattle. <laughs> if you're... If you're, does that make sense? You, you will always create distance between yourself and what you fear. And if you have an unhealthy fear of God, you will always create a distance between you and God. So what you'll, so what you'll do is church now becomes a penance that you pay. So you come to church on Sundays, and you, you kiss the ring, and you pay the mob boss off you, the tithe. And you, you're cool, and you go, look, I won't mess with you. You don't mess with me. We'll see you next week. And you have no God connection during the week and you can't grow and you cannot be made perfect and you cannot mature because you don't really believe that God loves you. You're just here to to click off a box so that God doesn't strike you dead this week. That's not how God works. And you're always going to live in distance. See, James says that if we'll draw near to God, God will draw near to us. But it's impossible to draw near to God if you're afraid of God. And by the way, if you would have seen me growing up, you would have said, man, that kid's got a lot of faith. Look at him worship. Look at him sing. Look at him dance. Look at him fast. Look at him pray. Look at him read the Bible. Look at him serve. Man, the hand of God's on him. The calling's of God's on him. Man, he must have a lot of I did not have a lot of faith. I was terrified. It was fear that looked like faith to the outward eye. But I was actually afraid of God. Cuz I didn't know these scriptures. So I lived with a dist I had no heart transformation. I had zeal and fear that looked like faith in church. But I was convinced God was against me. What a terrible way to live. You're so blessed that you go to this church where we don't talk like that. But that's how they talked. And faith comes by hearing. So whatever you're hearing is where faith grows. So if all you... If, if, there's this implica- if there's this implied idea that God is frustrated with you, that's where your faith will grow to. But I am not guilty. There is no condemnation. God loves me. Amen. And God loves you. Well, if you're going to clap, go ahead and clap your hands. and Come on. All right. So so number two, I am in Christ. You are in Christ. We are in Christ. If you're a believer in Jesus, if you've made Jesus Christ Lord of your life, you are in Christ. Now this term we we just read in Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation for who? For those who are in Christ. The term in Christ, in him, in whom, in Jesus, is found over 180 times in the New Testament. Paul, the writer of of most of the New Testament, including what we're reading right here in Romans and we're about to read in Colossians, Paul says in Christ 143 times. So let me remind you of who you are. You are a child of God, and let me remind you of where you are. You are in Christ. You are a child of God, and you are in You are more in Christ right now than you are in Las Vegas. Let me tell you Why? because you can leave Las Vegas you can't leave your position in Christ I like all these smiling faces like, cuz you think you can make one sin and God's done with you and you got to pray the prayer again you got to recommit again you got to get another bible and you got to read and you God is not fragile Your faith might be fragile right now, but your relationship with God is not fragile. Jabin, are you, like, encouraging us to just, like, go sinning? No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not encouraging that at all. But but whatever you have been doing probably hasn't been working. So let me actually give you something that could actually lead to some freedom. Okay. So I am a child of God and I am in Christ. So the battle then, the battle of this, the whole spiritual battle is over revelation, understanding. Yeah. Matthew 5 says that we are the light of the world. Light, revelation, illumination, understanding. You're the light of the world. And who is Satan? Satan is the prince of darkness, ignorance. Any place that Satan can keep you ignorant, he has the upper hand in your life. Wow. Wow. Any area. Where Satan can keep you ignorant. Wherever there's darkness. Wherever there is a lack of understanding. Uh, The Old Testament prophet said this. My people perish because of a lack of knowledge. Wherever there is not an understanding of Scripture. Satan will have victory and can have victory. And will have the upper hand in any battle. But wherever there's light. Understanding. Illumination. Revelation. Wherever there's an understanding of Scripture. Wherever there's light. You have the upper hand in the battle. So it's a battle of... See... I thought God was against me because I didn't know the Bible yet. I just knew whatever the guy was telling me on Sunday. But when I read the Bible for myself and I studied the word for myself, I went, wait a minute. Homeboy, now tell me about all this good stuff in here. Because he was so mad at himself preaching to himself, he didn't tell us good news. So I'm going to give you a scripture right now that's going to change your life. Are you ready? Four of you. Anybody else ready? I know we're all processing, so I'm not, I know this isn't like, you're like, I can't talk right now. It's like smiles and tears all over the room. So this is good. This is good. This is good. I'm going to read you a passage from Colossians. Now let me explain this before I go forward. I I grew up in what was called the charismatic church or the Pentecostal church. By the way, you're in one. We are Charismatic Pentecostal, which means uh, we believe that, that God is still moving. We believe that people can still be healed, delivered, set free. We still believe, we, like we believe God is God and is alive. Uh, in this tradition of church, there's a high focus on experience. Nothing wrong with that. I love it, but what happens is, in most of our traditions, preaching, proclaiming uh, is the vast majority of what happens on Sundays, not teaching. And so what ends up happening is that most preachers will preach Genesis through the book of Acts, because it's all narratives, it's stories. And you can preach what I do. You preach Gideon, you're a mighty warrior. glory to God, hallelujah. You're David. You're going to take down your Goliath. Hallelujah. I preached all of this, right? You're, you're in a storm, but Jesus is in your boat. Glory. I preached all of it. I preached it all. So I'm not against it. And I, and I can actually tell when our church is getting a little cold, it's like, now I got to preach all hot again, and then I'll preach. But the meat of the word is Romans through the book of Revelation. They're called the epistles, and it's teaching but it's not very exciting. But if you don't understand the epistles, you'll never understand the rest of the Bible. So there's a great man of God named Kenneth Hagin who said, I read the Bible through the book of Ephesians. In other words, I get my understanding of who I am in Christ, in Christ, 143 times, in Christ, I get that from the book of Ephesians. I find out who I am, and then I read the entire Bible through who I am in Jesus, Okay, so if you'll understand these next three verses that I'm gonna read, it'll change your whole outlook on how you read the rest of the Bible. Okay, so this includes you, check this out, who were once away from God. So this is who you were before Jesus. You were his enemies. Watch that, God doesn't have enemies. It's not that God was our enemy, excuse me, it's that we were his enemies. In other words, he was our enemy, um, it, it's not that God didn't love us or care for us. It was that we were we were his enemies separated by our evil thoughts and actions. And so God loved us. We didn't love God. God loved us when we hated God. Right? So God loved us when we were his enemy, when, when we were in enmity to him. And by the way, God loves your enemies. Don't you hate that? I hate when God blesses my enemies. I'm just being honest. I need grace. <laughs> My God, you're supposed to love me, not him anymore. <laughs> love... Okay, I guess he loves, he loves people more than we think. Verse 22, but yet now, now. Now, remember what we read in Romans 8:1. Now there is no condemnation. Yet now, present reality, who you are in Christ right now, alive, in your sin, in your mistakes, in your addictions, in your shortcomings. Yet now, he has reconciled. Now, real quick. Last week we talked about redeemed. God purchased us back. Now we have another re-word, reconciled. This means to restore to original relationship. God is bringing, in Christ, he's bringing us back to Adam with God with no sin. He's redeeming us back. He's reconciling us back to that unashamed walk with God. Where there are no secrets, there is no shame, and there is intimacy with God Through the death of Christ in his physical body. So he died so we could have this kind of relationship. As a result, as a result of two things the death of Christ, resurrection of Christ, and our faith in his death and resurrection. As a result, this is now who you are as a Christian. You're not just a sinner saved by grace going to heaven one day. You've been brought into his own presence. I don't feel God, you're in his presence feel like God's a million miles away you have access to his pre- you are in you are in the presence of God right here right now feel it or not you are holy dog you don't know what i said did you you don't know what i'm into no you are if you're in Christ you are holy you are blameless now that's you and God not you and maybe your brother or your sister or your spouse. So you can't look at your spouse and be a jerk and be like, yo, I'm blameless. No, that's not what we're talking about. But your walk with in God, you are blameless. And you stand before him without a single fault. That's good news. But you can't really preach that, so then it just never gets talked about. So I'm holy, I'm blameless, and I stand before God without a single fault. Let me tell you, if you will learn Colossians 1.22, you'll pray radically different the rest of your life. Because you now come, now you can Hebrews 4, come boldly to the throne of grace. Because you're not coming in your holiness, your blamelessness. You're not coming because you've never made a mistake. You're coming because he called you holy, he called you blameless, and he calls you faultless. Isn't that so good? But, and you're like, yeah, see, but, yeah, but you got to continue to believe this truth. So don't start in grace and then get off into works and into self-righteousness. you got to keep believing what God says about you. Stand firmly in that. Stand firmly in what? That I'm holy, I'm blameless, and I'm without fault. See, if you, if you think you're just a jacked-up sinner that God is frustrated with, You will never get free from sin, ever. You'll never get free from addiction. You'll never get free from issues, ever. Because that's who you think you are, and that's who you're going to be. But if you believe what God says about you, that you're holy, blameless, and without fault, the power of sin will start breaking off of your life. Because you're going to live to the level of your faith. Don't drift away from that assurance. The assurance. The assurance you received when you heard the good news. Do you remember that day? Do you remember the day you got born again and you heard that your sins could be forgiven and that God would be your father and that Jesus would forgive you of all your sins? No matter what you've done, no matter how bad you've been, no matter the things you're into right now, God says, come as you are. Do you remember it? Do you remember that good news you heard? Live in that. Stay right there. Don't ever move from that. Don't ever bend from that. What God thought about you on that day is still what God thinks about you today. And and he says, don't drift away. How do you drift away? By trusting in yourself. So we we don't have time to go there, but in Exodus 12 and Leviticus chapter one, Exodus chapter 12, Leviticus chapter one, you can read these scriptures later. I encourage you to. There was a sin offering that had to be given every year. So in the Old Testament people would have to bring a sacrifice to the priest every year and if the priest would accept that sacrifice they were forgiven for the year. And here's what you would do you were to bring your best and your first. So God says I don't want the runt of the litter. I don't want some three-legged jacked up messed up goat or whatever. He's I want a lamb. And I want it to be the best and I want it to be the firstborn. You would bring that offering to the temple and you would hand it to the priest. And when you would hand that offering, that sacrifice, that lamb to the priest, the priest would take the lamb and he would inspect the lamb. He would not inspect the man. He would inspect the lamb. And if the lamb was pure, and if the lamb was accepted, the man was forgiven. Anyone guess where I'm going with this? So in that moment, so we've been talking about in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. If Omar was to bring that lamb to me, if I was the priest and he brings me that lamb, and he hands me that lamb, I'm looking at the lamb, I'm not looking at Omar. Omar in that moment is in the lamb. I don't look over and go, are you treating your family okay? (laughs) You cussing? You still cussing? Still listening to Drake? (laughs) You still cheating on the golf course? Still cheating? (laughs) He doesn't cheat cheat on the golf course. You still messing with that? You still dealing with that? No, the priest never looked at the man. He looked at the lamb. John chapter 1. John the Baptist looks at Jesus. John the Baptist looks at Jesus and he goes, behold, look, 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 look. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm in Christ. Christ is the Lamb. So when God looks at me, God don't see Jabin. God sees Jesus. I'm going to let y'all take a praise break right there and give God. Somebody stand up and shout one second. I'm grateful for this. Woo! So when Jesus, his last words, into thy hands, I commit my spirit and when he said it, the veil tore, it was God saying, I accept this lamb. Perfect, sinless, beautiful, one. it's paid for, it's finished. And when the veil tore, it was God saying, I accept. And because the veil tore and because Jesus was able to give up his spirit, that means that the lamb was accepted. And now when you receive that lamb when you receive Christ you are now in Christ. Yes. And now I stand before the Father holy, blameless and without fault. Not because of anything I've done but because of what Jesus has done. That's the Bible. That's it. So what what do you do with that? Do you, you go cool. Now, okay, I'm forgiven. Got my fire insurance. Going to heaven, not going to hell. Cool. Go live my own life. See, see on the other side. I hope not. I hope you're not that dumb. Right? I, I hope not. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter six. He goes, he goes. Do we do we sin so grace can abound? Of course not. Jesus said in. in The book of Matthew said, don't tempt the Lord your God, don't. We ain't ain't, ain't trying to dishonor this. But when we fall, we don't run from God. We run back to God. So it leads me to my last point, I'm dependent on God. See, the message of grace, the message of everything that I just said for the last 30 minutes should not make me independent of God. It should make me more dependent and more in love with God than ever. Because I'm not trying to earn something. I'm not trying to achieve something. I am receiving something. Okay, so, so Paul says two things about, about this in, in Romans 8, 3 and 4. Here's what he says. He goes, number one, the law was powerless to change our life. The, power, the law was powerless. Number two, he says, we're going to have to walk by the Spirit. We're going to have to walk dependent on the Spirit. So everything that I just said about who you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit empowers you to now live it. Great. Did you just hear me? Yes. So I'm holy, blameless, and without fault as I stand before God. Now the Spirit of God empowers me as I walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now I can actually live it out. Yeah. Ne- never perfect. But I, now ha- I can now walk in victory because the Spirit of God helps me. You don't help you. The Spirit of God helps you. You don't become better and stronger. The Spirit of God empowers you. Okay, so in the Old Testament, there are 613 Mosaic laws. When you read Deuteronomy, you read Exodus, you read into Leviticus, you read into Deutero- uh, Numbers, you're, you're going to see 613 specific Mosaic laws. All these different things that God tells people to do, what you can do, what you can't do. You boil it all down, you get 10 commandments, boil it all down, you get two commandments, love God, love people. Those laws, the law is powerless to change your human heart. It, it, cannot, it cannot change you. So what does the law do? Here's what the law does, Romans 7, 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Of course not, certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. The law reveals two things, please Listen. The law reveals my sinfulness and God's holiness. But the law can't change me. It can just reveal truth. It reveals how holy God is and it reveals how sinful I am, but it doesn't change my heart. And you know this is true because you'll drive down the road, 35 mile an hour speed limit. You know it's 35, but you'll drive 55. Because that law can't change you. And then you see the cop. (laughs) And your stomach turns, you get a little sweaty, and you freak out. And you, Oh, my God, I can't get a ticket right now. And then they don't pull you over. And, they, and then you go back. Because even seeing the lawgiver, that didn't release faith. It released fear. So just knowing the law or understanding there's a lawgiver won't change your heart. So what do I have to do? I have to walk with the Spirit. That's what Romans eight four says. I have to walk according to the Spirit. Galatians five says it like this: Walk in the Spirit, and you will not, you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. What does that? Does that mean you'll never sin? Of course not. It means you're not living your whole life dominated by sin anymore. You sin sometimes, and you'll actually sin less. Because the Spirit of God is now empowering you. Amen. Romans 8 says we can be led by the Spirit. What does that mean? That means the Holy Spirit's in charge, not your flesh. Amen. So when you understand there's no condemnation, when you understand God loves you, when you understand there's grace, when you understand your holy blameless and without fault, what it should do is it should cause you to want to be totally dependent on the Holy Spirit, totally dependent on God, and run to God and get closer to God than you've ever been you're not trying to earn or achieve anything. You're just walking with your Father. So things like prayer, Bible reading, worship, fasting, church attendance, giving, serving, all good. All necessary. All things you should be doing, but you shouldn't be doing it because you think it's twisting God's arm or changing God's heart. Faith does not impress God, and faith does not change God. Faith changes me. Faith doesn't soften God's heart towards me. Faith softens my heart towards God. Faith does not change God. Faith changes me. Faith does not get God's attention. Faith gets my attention. Faith is my yes but grace is God's yes, and God says yes first. Remember we said this last week, grace is the initiator? So God says in Christ, God's saying yes. Done. It is finished. Done. Yes. Now my faith says yes to his yes. Not the other way around. Faith moves God. I don't know about that. I think faith moves us. it's crazy, huh? Think about fasting. You don't, you don't go on a fast and God goes, all right, guy better answer their prayer. They're going to, they're going to die. God doesn't watch you fasting. Okay, you've lost eight pounds. Pretty impressed. Let's get to 10 pounds. I'm going to answer that prayer. That's not how fasting works. Let me tell you what fast, fasting is not a hunger strike against an unwilling God. Fasting is me silencing all of the voices around me so that I can clearly hear and receive from God. Fasting does not change God. Fasting changes me. Reading the Bible. Reading the Bible doesn't impress God. Read five, six chapters and God goes, wow. 20 minutes in the Word today. I was going to kill you Tuesday, but I'm going to give you another week. Me reading the Bible doesn't change God. Me reading the Bible changes me. Yes. Yes. Let's think about worship. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Magnify. Make God bigger in my. Eye. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Worship doesn't make God bigger. Worship reminds me of how big my God is. Amen. So you worship. And you feel God and you go, ooh, I sang and I did religious ritual and God came down. No. I worshiped and was made aware because I put on the goggles of worship. I put on the magnifying glasses of worship and now I can see and hear and feel and sense God. He was here all the time. I was in his presence all the time. But I was not aware till I worshiped. My faith does honor God but it doesn't change God my faith changes me So so grace provides I'm going I'm starting to preach next week I got to stop Grace provides faith receives But my faith doesn't provide my, my faith only receives what God has provided. <sighs> Does that make sense? Oh, this is good. You are not guilty. You are in Christ. You are dependent upon God. Live that way. Live that way. Don't settle for anything less than that. Don't settle for a life of religious ritual and fear and torment and terror when there's a good God who loves you and has good plans for you and has good things for you.